This is Darrell Lalia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 56. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7-Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all-round geek, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobsher, the Cashflow Ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place. Mr. Hollywood himself presents the Before the Millions podcast. And now your host, DeRay Olalaye. Hey, what's up? What's going on, BTM Tribe? DeRay Olalaye here, and we are back. The saga continues, and I'm super excited for this week's show, super excited for this week's guest. His name is Tom Caffarella, and Tom used to be a corporate accountant, just like me. Tom had one leg under the table, which we talk about all the time on the show, and what I mean by one leg is that that was his only source of income. That was his only source of pride. That was his source of being. That was his sense of being, sense of fulfillment. That was everything to him, and because he only had that one leg... When things got tough and that corporate giant swung that axe and broke that leg, Tom was left with nothing. And in their eyes, I mean, they're good. They have no worries. They're going to replace Tom in less than three seconds. But for that individual, that individual has to figure out how they're going to take care of themselves, how they're going to provide for themselves and their family. And that's a scary time. So it's one of those things to where if you can prevent something like that, especially by adding more legs to the table, why wouldn't you? Tomorrow's not promised and neither is the job. So Tom is going to teach us a lot on this episode. And one of the peculiar things he's going to teach us about is how to use Facebook for real estate investing. So it's going to be very interesting and very fascinating, guys. Can't wait for you guys to hear this interview with Tom, man. And then we're hitting you guys with all of these bonuses all month long. I'm loving it. So for you new listeners out there, we don't normally put out 10 episodes a month. It's more like four, maybe five but we've came up on our one year anniversary and I wanted to add as much value as I could to you guys this month as possible. And that's what we're doing. And it's been amazing. You know, this podcast is constantly being improved, constantly being worked on, constantly being tweaked so that we could provide you guys with the most value. You know, me, myself, I am constantly working on my skills. I'm always working on my interview skills. And recently I kind of added a few techniques to my belt. And it's one of those things to where you guys are not going to really hear the effects of that technique for another few weeks, just because the interviews are queued up a few weeks in advance. But I'm sure you guys are going to like where we're going with this. And, you know, again, it's, it's a constant improvement. It's an ever-changing formula. And I think that you have to constantly be trying and tweaking things so that you're always growing. You know, the minute you stop trying, the minute you stop learning, you're dying, metaphorically speaking. That's also quite literal, I think. Without any further ado, though, let's get to the show. DeRay's Tip of the Week. 
This show is a big advocate for lifestyle design. And one of the reasons for this is because we want to be able to spend as much time with our loved ones as possible. And when I think about my loved ones and, you know, when you guys think about your loved ones and you think about your parents more specifically, it's said that out of all the time that you spend with your parents, 80% of that time is spent with them before the age of 18. And I thought about that for a minute. And I was just like, hmm, there's not a whole lot of time left to spend with our parents. You ask the average adult how often he or her sees their mom and their dad. And, you know, a lot of people say once a year, twice a year. I mean, we're in a culture in which we don't grow up how our parents grew up. I mean, our parents grew up with their family all under the same roof and, you know, their parents, parents. And for the majority of us, our, we've always been a part of one big family. But in this day and age, we're constantly moving, we're constantly exploring, we're constantly spreading, and we see our parents less and less. When you ask the average middle-aged American how often they see their parents, they often say once a year, twice a year, every few months, during the holidays maybe. And if the average person in America dies around 75 or 80 years old, then you think about how old your parents are. And if your parents are 60, 65, and you see them once a year, it's easy to think that or feel as though you have the next 15 years with them, which is true. But in actuality, if you think about it in terms of moments that you can capture experiences, you're going to see your parents 15 more times. And when you turn it and twist it that way, it's actually pretty scary. So make a conscious effort to make experiences with those that you love, especially your parents and grandparents. That's what it's all about. That's what it boils down to. It boils down to the experiences that you have with your loved ones on this planet. You want to cherish those moments. You want to enjoy those moments. You want to live in those moments. That's it, guys. That's the tip of the week. Let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. On today's show, I'm excited, guys. We are speaking to the man himself, Mr. Tom Caffarelli. I've done some research on Tom, and Tom is a fascinating individual. Just to kind of give you guys a little background on Tom, Tom has always dreamt of following his grandfather's footsteps. His grandfather was a very successful landlord, and Tom has became not only an investor, but a real estate mogul. He started multiple businesses, and we'll get into that. But instead of following everybody's advice and taking the traditional nine-to-five job, which he did for a while as an accountant, you know, so we have similar backgrounds. He kind of went on this entrepreneurial binge and he's been successful at it. And we're going to get into a lot of that. You know, the problem was that his heart was in real estate. His heart was not at his nine to five job. And I know a lot of you may be able to relate to that. So it didn't take long after Tom got fired from his job due to his daydreaming about his passion, which is real estate, to kind of, you know, get started and get going. So Today, Tom is the co-founder of Ocean City Development, a real estate investment company based out of Boston, Massachusetts, which many of you don't know, but that is my hometown. That is where I'm from. I like to claim Houston, Texas because I've been in Houston all of my life, but I was born in Boston, Massachusetts. So love it. Uh, Tom's team has acquired over 500 properties in the past five years, some to flip, some to wholesale, and some to buy and hold. Tom is also the co-founder of the Cameron Real Estate Group, and that's a real estate brokerage with over 200 agents. Their sole focus is on helping Tom find investment deals to buy. So this Boston-based investor is a father of three who believes that if you do what you love, you'll never have to work a day in your life. I love that mantra. Tom, that, I mean, let's start there. Let's start with, you know, let's just kind of jump right into your story. Let's start with the discontentment. Where were you working? What were you doing? And what were some of the things that didn't sit well with you at your job? 
So can I just back it up just for a couple of years? So, you know, you talked about the fact that, you know, my grandfather was a successful landlord. He was really the only person that I knew growing up that was able to be where he wanted to be, do what he wanted to do. And I thought he didn't have a job. I didn't understand, you know, what he was doing. I didn't understand, you know, the power of, of owning rental properties. So in the back of my head, I kind of, I didn't know I wanted to do that, but I love the fact that he had his independence. And so I went into college, I was pre-med and I became pre-med because I went into the Boston Public Library. I looked up the salaries of every profession and I saw that doctors on average made the most amount of money. So I knew I wanted to make money. So I, I became uh, pre-med in college. While I was working during college, you know, putting myself through college, I was a pizza delivery boy. And I came across, and you, you spend a lot of time, you know, driving around, you know, when you're delivering pizzas. And I, I, I put an audio, an audio book in my cassette tape at the time, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'm not sure if you've read the book or listened to the audio or a lot of your, your listeners have. But I was three years through pre-med, and I had done everything that I needed to do to get into medical school. By the time that I finished listening to that audiobook, I knew I was in the wrong direction with my career. So I made a quick switch. So I had to go to college for two more years, but I ended up double majoring. I, I double majored in biochem and accounting. And at the time, there was um, a regulation that came out called Sarbanes-Oxley, which basically allowed accounting firms to get a ton more work and they were paying really, really well out of college. And I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I thought that by being an accountant and kind of being around other people and servicing other people that were entrepreneurs, it would kind of be a step in the right direction. So kind of earn some money, get around people that, that were building successful businesses. But when I showed up to work, it couldn't have been, you know, further from the truth. And I, I know, you know, you probably had some of a similar experience, but being an accountant at a big accounting firm is one of the least entrepreneurial professions that you can have. You know, I just felt totally unfulfilled. I would sit behind my desk all day long, 10, 11, 12 hours a day doing work. I, I hated doing, but worse than that, I never really had a plan for where I'm going to go. I mean, I knew two years down the line, three years down the line, what I was going to make, where I was going to be. And as a 22, 23, 24-year-old guy who was really, really motivated, there was nothing I could do to kind of leapfrog. Like I couldn't, if I worked really, really hard, maybe instead of getting promoting in three years, maybe I would get promoting in two and a half years. But there was no way to be making partner money or to, to fast forward my career 10 years, no matter how many hours I put in. So that was super demotivating to me. And I probably should have quit my second or third week into it, but I was so young. I didn't even know what being an entrepreneur was. I just kept trying to grind it out, but my heart was so much not into it that I would spend half of my day reading stuff online about real estate and trying to learn how to become a real estate investor that I ended up not doing my job very well. And then in December of 2007, I, I walked into work and, you know, they told me that it was going to be my last day. You know, from there, I was, let's see, 2007, uh, so 11 years ago, I was 24 years old. I said to myself, if I'm going to do anything entrepreneurially, I need to do it now because I don't have kids. Um, I don't have any big bills. So I need to get this off the ground now. And looking back, it's funny because when I did that, I thought I was taking a big risk. 
And when I got fired, I felt like a failure. But looking back, I had no risk whatsoever. And it was the perfect time in my life in order to do it. You've touched on quite a few things that haven't been touched on yet, you know, on this show. And especially speaking to people in, in corporate America that may be in the accounting and accounting and finance space. It's one thing to you know, when you talk about public versus industry, and again, this may be a subject that may go over a lot of people's heads, but when you talk about public accounting versus industry accounting, or being in public versus any industry job, as a public accountant, you know, kind of what you said, you know, every single year, what your raise is going to be, you know, exactly how much you're going to be making in five years, you know, exactly how much you're going to be making in 10 years, like, it's not this big ordeal kind of how it is in industry to where people keep their salaries secret and you don't really know the raises and things like that. It's actually, I mean, it's common knowledge. Like, you know, it's very different from a lot of corporate settings in which, you know, people don't know how much everybody else makes. No, in corporate and in big four accounting, everybody knows how much everybody makes. Like, I mean, it's common knowledge. We all talk about it. So you're easily able to see two years down the line, three years down the line, 10 years down the line, how much you could possibly be making. And you realize that it wasn't, a, it was going to take a long time to make a lot of money. And B, it wasn't all what it was cracked up to be. Your motivation started to sway. Your motivation started to look into being more entrepreneurial and, and being a real estate investor. You picked up that little purple book and you picked it up, you know, by, by way of a cassette tape. And that totally yeah. changed your view. That totally changed your mindset on everything. So you being uh, 24 years old, you have no income any longer. And, you know, the world is your oyster because, because you have no kids and you have no major responsibilities. What's next? What do you do? So I failed for a while on my own. So even though I thought I was taking a big risk and everything else, as a 24-year-old guy, I thought I was pretty smart. And I thought I could figure everything out on my own. So I didn't think I needed any help. I, I didn't sign up for any coaching programs. I just kind of got my teeth kicked in for the first couple of years. And I didn't do a deal for the first couple of years. I actually got my real estate license. I did a couple of real estate sales, but I never did an investment deal. And it wasn't until I actually found a local area mentor that I actually did my first deal. And when I did my first deal, I almost wasn't even going to do that particular deal until my mentor actually pushed me. So what ended up happening is I got a great deal under contract, a two family in the city of Somerville, which is one of the hottest sections of Boston. And I got it for such a good price. My number said that I should be able to pay $400,000 for it. $400,000 was going to be a good deal. So that was my goal when I went out there. When I showed up, I was so nervous to make that offer, maybe thinking I was overpaying for it, that I offered $300,000. And she ended up taking it. Wow. So, <laughs> so, so most people, you know, again, a good deal would have been four hundred. dollars When they get it for $100,000 less than what their good deal price is, would be celebrating. For me, I was freaking out because I didn't have any money. I just told somebody I, I was going to close in their house in 30 days and I had no idea what to do or how to make money from it. And my mentor just said to me, look, I know you don't have the money, but we can find somebody who can either fund this deal or wholesale this deal to somebody else who has the money. And he said, look, if you don't buy this deal, I will, but you shouldn't sell this deal to me because I'm not going to pay you the most amount of money for it. Let's open it up to all the Boston area investors and let's wholesale the deal to somebody. And my goal when I put that property under contract for 300 was to find an investor to maybe pay 350. And I promoted it for the next week to two weeks. I had a one-time open house. And again, the whole you know week to two weeks, I'm sweating it out saying, what if nobody shows up to the open house? 
And when I showed up and I saw 200 people at the open house, I was thinking in my head, man, I'm going to make that $50,000. I'm going to sell it for three fifty. Long story short, we ended up selling it for four fifteen. So on my first deal, I made $115,000 without having any money or having to close on the property. And the person that bought that deal from me ended up making over $300,000 because I was selling them a great deal. You know, there's so many different avenues we can kind of explore based on this story. But one kind of in the background that I kind of want to dive into a little bit deeper is the power of a mentor. I know it's, it may be a hard, abstract question, but what do you think may have happened in that situation if you didn't have a mentor? I would not have bought the house. I, would have, I wouldn't have known what to do. I wouldn't have known how to wholesale or how to make money on it. And I would have backed out. And that wasn't the first deal, by the way, that I backed out of. So before I got a mentor, I backed out of a lot of deals. And what I see a lot of times is people that are looking to get into the business that have never done a deal before, they tend to go into two different groups. And group A are the people that say, I don't care what happens, I'm going to take action and I'm going to do a deal. Now, sometimes those people are super aggressive and they end up doing deals that they shouldn't do because they just say, I don't care, I need to get my first deal under my belt. And then group B are people like me that are a little bit more conservative and they get a great deal and they get scared and then they pull back. So I really feel for almost every newer real estate investor, they need some sort of mentor. They need somebody that they can go to because if they're being too aggressive, they need someone to pull the reins back. And if they're afraid to take that step and they have a great deal or they don't, they're not sure what to do, they just need a little bit of a push. So I do mentor people. And when I started mentoring people, I thought that the reason somebody needed a mentor was because they didn't know what to do. But what I found out is after doing it for a few years is that information. The problem is knowing when to, to pull back and knowing when to take a step forward, especially in the beginning. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So earlier on, Tom, you were, I mean, you were 24. How, what did you know about mentoring at the time? I mean, most people at that age wouldn't even, I mean, I know that when I first started, I started at 25 and I read that same little purple book and I was in group A, not group B, but I didn't get a bad deal. I was in group A in that I, I read the book in April and I, I bought yep. my first property in May. Like I wasn't wasting any time. <laughs> I, I wasn't looking for advice. I was just like, no, like this book is freaking crazy and I need to do something immediately. So I closed on my first property in less than 30 days, but you know, Coming from Group B and knowing the fact that you need a mentor, where did you get some of that? Where did you, you know, how did you even, because I mean, my mindset back then was that mentors are a waste of time, mentors are a waste of money. I mean, I have a totally different mindset now, but that was my mindset back then. I, I didn't understand why people would pay all this money to have a mentor, somebody who has knowledge that you can go find, you know, these things on the internet. So maybe talk about what you saw as far as the benefits of having a mentor and does that stand true to, uh, to today? So I thought the same way that you did it, I thought it was a waste of time, a waste of money. But then when you don't do a deal for two years, you start to think a little bit differently. Like maybe I'm doing something wrong. And at the end of the day, my biggest fear has always been going back to corporate America. I kid you not, even though I've been super successful at what I've done, I still worry about it sometimes today. Now, it's an irrational fear. I mean, it'll never happen, but sometimes I still think about it. So at that point, at the point I got a mentor, to be honest with you, it was almost like the end of my rope. Like I've got to do something and I need to, to take action somehow. And so that's what I ended up doing. Today, the older I get, I realize the less I know. So I thought when I was 24, I thought I knew everything. When I was 30, I said, oh, there's a couple of things I don't know. 
now that I'm 35, I'm realizing, wow, there's a lot I don't know. So the older I get, the more I realize I don't know everything. And the older I get, the more I want to pay to shortcut things. And so having a coach really helps you shortcut the, the path that you're going on. So if it's going to take me three years to do it on my own or one year with a coach, today I'm saying, where do I go? How much do I pay? So at the end of the day, I'm still in multiple coaching programs right now. Now, I don't go into the same topics every single time. I'm hiring coaches for different reasons, right? You talked about in the intro that I built a pretty big real estate brokerage. Well, two years ago, I didn't have any real estate agents. I hired a coach to help me build that company. And I went from zero to 225 agents in two years. If I did that on my own, I promise you I wouldn't have got there. So there's always a, co there's a cost of having a coach. And then there's a cost of not having a coach. And what I found as I've gotten older is the cost of not having a coach exceeds the cost of having a coach. I love that. Love that so much. So 24-year-old Tom has just completed the biggest deal of his life. Yep. What happens next? You have 115 grand. You have the ego of a, of a whale. What happens yep. next? <laughs> so 115000 is not what you should expect to make on your first deal. I got very, very lucky. And it was both a blessing and a curse. So it was a blessing because anytime that you make a honey, you should be pretty grateful. And I was very grateful. The problem was, is I still didn't have a business at that point. I still didn't have systems that would allow me to replicate that business. So my next deal came six months later because I was still going out. And I talk about when I coach people, I talk about the Goldilocks offer, which means you don't want to hire, you, you can't offer too much is if you offer too much, you won't make any money. But if you offer too little in this market, you're probably never gonna do a deal or you're gonna very infrequently do a deal. So I like to make what I call the Goldilocks offer, which is basically high enough for me to make a bunch of money and high enough for, for me to, to get deals and low enough for me to still make a bunch of money. So there's kind of a, a right number to offer. And so I went six months without doing my second deal because my first deal, my number should have been 400, right? And I would have made 15,000 and that's kind of a normal assignment or wholesale deal. But instead I offered 300. So for the next six months, I still kept making those crazy low offers and I never got anything accepted. And I actually got to a second point where I felt like, oh man, I might be out of the business. Luckily, I ended up doing my, my second deal at the six month range. And then, you know, I went only a couple months before doing my third deal. And then from there, I really started building the systems that would allow me to replicate what I'm doing. So when we talk about systems, it, you know, we talk about a company like McDonald's, right? So if I were to ask you, you know, where are you going to get, you have one last burger to eat in your life, where would you go? I can almost promise you, you wouldn't say McDonald's. But if I asked you where you, you've eaten the most amount of burgers in your life, you probably will admit McDonald's is either the number one or up there. And it's because they have systems. They're able to produce the same product over and over and over again. And what city are you in? I'm in Houston right now. You're in Houston. I'm in Boston. If I go out to Houston, the burger in Houston is going to taste exactly like the burger in Boston. And so I needed to build my systems to get from deal one to deal two to deal three so that I could replicate that you know, crazy good deal that I had the first time. And I didn't have that ability to replicate after my first deal, which is why it took me six months to do my second deal.
Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So as far as, you know, we're looking at your first deal and it took you six months for you to even get another deal, get a, a whiff of another deal. Yep. Now, during that time, or maybe even, maybe even before that time, did you decide on your real estate strategy? Because going into that first deal, your real estate strategy was, I could probably wholesale. Yes. I could, it, it could be a rental. I could flip. I mean, there was there were so many options. It seemed like as though you you and your your mentor were, were discussing. So after that first deal, were you set on one strategy, or was it still I'm going to play it by you know once I get the property or once once I start getting some traction, I'm going to kind of see what I can do with the property. How how did you kind of go forward with that? Well, I always wanted to buy rentals, but rentals in general tend to need a little bit more capital, and I didn't have that capital to start. So. In the beginning, because I didn't have a ton of capital, I was wholesaling most of the transactions in the beginning. Now, I probably had enough capital to do a deal after my first wholesale, but I didn't feel like I had the contracting. And to be honest with you, between zero months and six months, I was spending a lot of money on marketing. And so my 115,000 was going down and down and down and down. By the time I did my second deal, I really didn't have a choice. I had to wholesale it again. So I did three or four or five wholesales before I built up enough of a chunk of money in order to do my first fix and flip. And then once I started doing fix and flips here and there, the numbers started to change. Not always, but in most cases, you make a bunch more money once you flip the deal versus wholesaling the deal. Like I mentioned, even on the wholesale deal where I made a killing and I got very, very lucky, I made 115. The person who ended up flipping it made 300. So typically in my market, you know, if we're going to wholesale a deal, we're going to make 10 or 15 or 20 or 25. But if we fix and flip it, we're going to make 60 or 70 or 80. So the numbers are just bigger. It allows you to accumulate more cash. Once I started to accumulate enough cash, then I started buying rental properties using the Burr strategy, which is buy, rent at full market value, then refinance. So once I was able to start doing that, I was able to accumulate rental properties and not really have to outlay a lot of cash. And now I do all three. The least strategy that I utilize though is wholesaling only because it's the least profitable. So typically now I'll wholesale a deal only when the property's far away or our contractors get super busy, but typically we're able to, to, to have the funding and, and get the deals done. So we'll typically flip them. Okay. That makes a whole lot of sense. So would this be the recommended path for a newbie investor coming from the corporate space would be to wholesale then flip then rentals or, I mean, and I'm, t I'm speaking about an individual who's looking to get into the uh, rental property game and maybe have their income, you know, pass up the income of their W2 job and eventually be able to exit the rat race. What is your preferred method? So in order to do it the right way, right, in order to accumulate a lot of rentals, you've got to get the properties at a discount because the Burr method, the buy, renovate, rent, and refinance to get all of your money back out, that only works if you get a discount on the front end. So you've got to learn how to market for properties in order to get them discounting in order to pull your money back out. So you can execute that strategy like right out of the gate if you wanted to, but what's going to happen is if you're marketing for, pro if you're marketing for deals that aren't currently on the MLS, stuff that not everybody can get, you're going to run into great deals that maybe you don't want to buy and hold. And when you run into those deals, you don't want to throw that away because you can wholesale that deal. That first deal that I did that I made 115000 it was a multifamily. And I could have held that as a rental, but when I ran the math, I said, wow, I'm going to make a lot more, a lot faster wholesaling. So I think my goal when I first started was just to accumulate rental properties. 
but the whole, all three exit strategies work together. I actually now have a fourth exit strategy, which is to list the properties. So again, if you're marketing for properties that are not currently listed online and you're making a bunch of offers, you're going to come across a lot of sellers that don't necessarily want to sell to an investor, but they want to sell. And if you have the ability to list their home or even work with another agent to list their home, it's just another income stream. That's amazing. I love that. One of the things that, that I love about what you've been doing, Tom, is that you've, you've kind of just, you know, started and learned as you went. And that's one thing that many, many people that, that I come across that, you know, the problem is, you know, you talk about the two buckets, you know, you're either in group A or group B, but yep. even before getting in any of those buckets, I find that 99% of the people don't even get started. And that's because of fear. So maybe talk to that. You were put in a position in which you were forced to get started. What about people who are looking to get started now and aren't necessarily in a position to where, you know, they have their back against the wall, but they definitely know that this is what they want to do. And they just haven't gotten started, which again, is the case for 99% of people out there. And that's why I think you really need a mentor. I mean, you need somebody who can push you. You need to get around like-minded individuals. So I think, you know, one of the things that prevents people from getting started is, you know, they're talking to people who have never done anything, right? They've never done a deal. They don't understand the benefits of doing a deal. They're probably telling you that you're crazy, right? So all of my friends that I grew up with told me I was crazy for starting my business. Why would you ever quit you know, a full-time, well, not quit, I got fired, but why would you ever not want to go back into that field when you can guarantee, right? So for me, you've got to, you've got to get around like-minded people who are doing it. A coach is a great way to do that. If you can't afford a coach at all, I mean, if you literally have no money, then you've got to just get around other investors. You've got to go to RIA groups. You've got to get in, in Facebook groups and start talking to other people that are doing it. To me, that's step one. The fear factor, I think, comes from the unknown. And not no, you feel like you nobody's ever paved the path before, but there are so many people across the country that have. And if you're around those people, it becomes a lot easier. At the end of the day, most of us can can afford some sort of coach at so, some level. And you know, there's all different types of packages that people have. And so, for the most part, I've never really found too many people that quite literally can't. Most people, except that they don't want to or they don't want to give up, you know, a small luxury right? They don't want to drive a little bit less of a car in order to get coaching. But at the end of the day, it's all about making the sacrifices early on so that you can really build the business. I love that. I love that. And you said it perfectly. And I tell my students, it's not about having the resources. I mean, the resources, there are infinite resources. There's infinite money. There's infinite people you can ask. There's infinite everything as far as resources. It's just about being resourceful. You know, you can, you don't need the resources. If you are a resourceful person, you will do great. You will do amazing. So don't worry about having the resources. Don't worry about knowing exactly what to do and where to get it and how to, how to find it. You know, just know that if you commit, if you make the decision to be successful, if you make the decision to be resourceful, then everything else is going to fall in place as long as you never give up. So I think I think that's great, Tom. So let's move further a little bit down your journey and let's talk about some of the companies that you've opened. You talk you've talked about opening. Uh, you talked about these agents that work for you. So let's talk about when you when you decided to start opening a few other companies to complement your your primary business. So what we were finding is that because and again this all goes back to the fact that you've got to get deals off market. Like if somebody else knows that the property is listed. If it's listed on the market and everybody can get access to it, it's very difficult to get a really good deal. And we need really good deals as real estate investors in order to make money. So we implement marketing strategies to get these face-to-face appointments. And what we were finding is that we're getting a bunch of face-to-face appointments. And a lot of the people weren't willing to sell to an investor. 
either because they couldn't or because they don't want to or because it's not the right strategy for them. So I ended up hiring a real estate agent as my first kind of acquisitions person. When my daughter was born five years ago, I said to myself, I've got to stop working 100 hours a week. I love working, but I wanted to be able to spend time with my family at night. So what I ended up doing is I hired two people. I hired a real estate agent as an acquisitions person to do all my face-to-face appointments. And then I hired an inside sales agent to book face-to-face appointments for me. So it allowed me to leverage so that the real estate agent that was taking my appointments, they would keep coming back to me and they would, they would keep saying after making offers, look, this particular person is never going to sell to you. They really need to list their home. Why won't you let me list the property? And at the time I had no interest in the real estate brokerage business. So I would just say, look, we're an acquisitions company. We just want a buying order to flip or to buying order to wholesale or buying in order to buy and hold. We don't want to list homes. And so he kept coming back to me, kept coming back to me. And finally, I relented and allowed him to list a home. And once he listed one, he listed two, he listed three. He ended up listing about 35 properties in that first year. And these were all off of really acquisition appointments. I mean, the person wanting a cash offer. But again, when we got out there, we realized it wasn't the right thing for them. So that kind of, you know, was the starting point of me building out the real estate brokerage, you know, figuring out that it makes the most sense when you're going out face to face to really determine what makes the most sense for that individual, right? So a lot of people, it doesn't make sense for them to sell to an investor and it doesn't, we want to be able to help them in some way, shape or form. So in the course of two years, I went from zero agents up to 225 agents. My real estate agents don't just take those appointments, but they also prospect for me. So they'll be dialing and they'll be calling through records of homes that I want to buy. So I'll, get, I'll buy cell phone records for them and I'll give them a dialer and they'll call through and say, hey, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, would you be interested in all cash offer on your home now or at any point in the future? And then my agents will actually go out and they'll meet with the sellers, they'll make my offer. And if it doesn't make sense to sell to an investor, then we'll try to list their home. Name a scenario in which it wouldn't make sense to sell to an investor. Well, let's say that they owe $280,000 on their mortgage and the property is worth $300,000 and my offer is two twenty. dollars right? They can sell their house, they can get out of their house, maybe put a couple of bucks in their pocket to sell to me, their mortgage balance is just too high. And in that case, they're not underwater, so it doesn't make sense for them to do a short sale. Another example would be you know, somebody that, their house is in perfect condition. They don't mind listing their home. They can wait. They have time. And they really want top dollar or they need top dollar in order to, to move to their next house. So sometimes we'll get people that they like the idea of selling to a cash investor, but they don't realize what the discount actually is. So when we go out on our face-to-face appointments, we really try to serve as a consultant. We try to figure out what they really should do. We try to put them in our, and we try to put ourselves in their shoes in order to make the right determination for them. Got it. So skew those numbers in that first scenario a little bit to uh, make it make sense for a uh, seller to want to sell to an investor. So that first scenario, you said that, you know, let's say the the mortgage on the property is 280 and the, the property is actually worth 300, but you're offering 220. Skew those numbers to where it would make sense for that seller to want to sell to an investor, just to give us a picture of that as well. If they have equity 
period, it means that they have the ability to sell to an investor. Once they have equity, let's say on that home, they had no mortgage, they would have the ability to sell to us. It still doesn't necessarily mean that it makes sense for, for them to sell to us. So it really, when an investor sells to us at a discount, it's usually situational. We had an example of a, a property that was in perfect condition. We actually went out there. We told the seller that it didn't make sense to sell to an investor. And now it, it, it turned out, and we didn't realize this at the time, they had full equity in the property. And the husband of the couple had just had a heart attack. They have family in Florida. Their daughter lives in Florida. And before we came out to make that offer face-to-face, they said to each other, as long as they make a reasonable offer, we're gone. We're not spending another, another winter in Boston. We need to head out to Florida. They were a little bit older. You know, they said to us, they said, look, you know, we've only probably got 10 or 15 year, good years left. We made the decision. We don't want to be here anymore. And our daughter lives in Florida. So we're gone. So that's in full of a time where somebody has full equity. And in this case, their house was even in great shape but they were just done. They wanted to move on to their next stage of life. And there's about 30 different examples, totally different situations where it would make sense for a seller to sell to an investor and take that discount and still be very, very happy. I just got, you know, I'm on my, my Facebook page and literally as we're, as we're on here, a review came through that I just bought somebody's mother-in-law's house and they were just totally happy with it. And some people will think, well, you know, you buy a property at a discount, people are going to be mad. But the people that we work with, they're thrilled because there's a legitimate reason for them to sell to us. Love it. Love it. And yeah, you're, I mean, you're solving a problem. I mean, you're catering to a specific demographic. You're not catering to people who necessarily are looking to sell a property or trying to see how much the property is valued at. You're selling to people who have a specific problem. And if you know, and if you have the capability to solve that problem, then you're going to make both sides happy, both parties happy. So that's amazing. And again, it sounds like this method is, you know, you're looking for motivated sellers, which is a major distinguishment. And I know that you have many tactics for finding uh, motivated sellers. Let's talk to one and I think uh, it's a perfect segue into this. Let's talk to one of those tactics. Let's talk about how you use uh, Facebook advertising to find motivated sellers such as this. Yep. So we use a lot of different mediums. The, the ones that work the best today are cold calling, mailing, Google ads, and Facebook ads. Those are the top four. That's where we spend our time, effort, and energy and money. Facebook ads are great. So Facebook is a marketing medium that we've never seen before really in the history of not really, actually, we've never seen this in the history of mankind. Facebook knows everything about us. So Facebook knows how old we are. Facebook knows what we do for work. Facebook knows whether or not we own a home because Facebook is a data aggregator. So Facebook will have all of the information that you put in, which by the way, is a lot of information. But then on top of the information that you put in, Facebook also is a data aggregator and they'll run that information against other data sources. So they'll look and, you know, my name on Facebook is Tommy Caffarella. So they'll look up, you know, Thomas Caffarella, they'll look at the city I live in and then they'll run that against another database. So Facebook ads are incredible because you can literally hand select all of the different criteria. So when you're running a Facebook ad, you can say, Hey, I want to put my ad in front of homeowners that are likely to move, that are college educated from the ages of 30 to 55, right? So you can get really, really specific. The great thing about Facebook, as opposed to other older mediums 
like TV or radio is that when you buy an ad on TV, you're paying to put that ad up in front of everybody who's watching that show. But the problem is, is that most people who are watching that show aren't your target audience. I mean, a lot of people that are watching a TV show are renters, right? So if you're looking to buy houses, you're putting ads up in front of people that aren't, don't even have the ability to work with you. So Facebook is so crazy in that way and that you can put your ads up in front of the exact person and only pay for those ads to show in front of the right people. So it's, it's a phenomenal thing. We've never seen that much detail in terms of a marketer in the history of mankind. And it's just, you know, so crazy because for a reasonable marketing budget, you can get in front of the exact same, the exact people you want. Like just by knowing your name and the fact that you're in Houston, I could put an ad up in front of you in an hour from now and it would be in your newsfeed. Love it. Love it. Yeah. I'm definitely a big fan of Facebook advertising. It's an amazing platform and you, you, you explained it perfectly for the listeners out there looking to get into that. So maybe let's kind of get into the, the, the crux of that question. So how do we generate, you know, leads with Facebook advertising for, you know, finding those motivated sellers? I mean, we talked about segmenting a little bit uh, to find maybe homeowners in a certain demographic who are looking to move uh, soon. Um, what else is, is something that we look for to, to find motivated sellers? So there's a lot of different things that you can do on Facebook. You can actually upload addresses and run and run ads off the addresses. So for oh, example, wow. if, if you want to target people that are in pre-foreclosure or probate properties or vacant properties, you can actually upload the addresses into Facebook and put those ads in front of people. So you can get really super specific if you want to, or you can make a, you can do a little bit wider of an approach, which is actually the way I do it. So I, I know the cities I like to buy houses in. So in the greater Boston area, there are cities that sellers are more likely to sell to investors than they are to go retail and vice versa. So the first thing I look at is the type of properties I want to buy and what cities they're in. So I'm not going to put ads up in front of people that own properties in cities that are unlikely to sell to me. So I've got all of greater Boston mapped out to where you know, I know where they're more likely to sell to me. But then I also put up the demographic information. So I'm a 35-year-old guy. 35-year-old guys on average don't sell to investors. So we know that in general, we have a certain personal avatar, right? So we know that on average, people who have lived in their homes for over 10 years are more likely to sell to us. We also know that people over the age of 50 are more likely to sell to us. We also know that people with equity are more likely to sell to us. So when we're in Facebook, we're putting in, we're basically checking the boxes. We also know that real estate agents, right? So, so Facebook knows what you do for a living. So we exclude doctors, we exclude attorneys, we, we exclude real estate agents because those people are less likely to sell to us. And so we just have a, a simple avatar that we use and then we put the ads up in front of the people who fit the avatar, right? And then we just wait. And Facebook is like clockwork. It runs continuously. We have leads that come in each and every day. We have multiple leads that come in each and every day for people that are filling out forms online that are interested in selling their home. And then we call them. We try to get out. We meet them face-to-face. -face, we make offers. And a certain percentage of those are going to sell to me. And then a certain percentage are going to list with our company. That makes sense. So let's, I mean, you kind of just did it for us. Let's walk through your funnel. So you, you set up a Facebook ad with all your criteria and this Facebook ad has a link uh, maybe to your website and that website has a form on it for them to fill out. 
I actually use something called Facebook Forms. So Facebook has this thing called Facebook Forms that when you click on my ad, it'll automatically auto-populate all of the information that you have stored in Facebook. It'll put in your name, it'll put in your email, it'll put in your phone number because all of that information Facebook already has. So we try to make it as easy for people as possible when they're running ads to give us their information. So all that we do on our Facebook form is somebody clicks on my ad, it auto-populates their name, email, phone number, then they just have to click one more button and then I get that contact info. Now after they submit that contact info, we do drop them to our website and on our website, will be, hey, what's the address of the property? How old is it? You know, do you have an asking price? We'll make them fill out more information. But a lot of times they don't even go through that step. Again, the harder that you make it for somebody to give you their information, the more work you make somebody do, the less likely they are to actually fill it out. So the first step is the Facebook form to keep it really simple. I love that. That's amazing. And it sounds like you have a well-oiled machine when it comes to this specific tactic. And again, you have so many other tactics, but let's maybe talk again from a 30,000 foot view and talk about why you decided to get into Facebook and, you know, some of these other, uh, some of these other lead generation tactics. And was it because of, you know, mentorship or somebody who came before you or, you know, you getting guidance from somebody else? Because again, I think that's the crux of this, of this conversation is, you know, making sure that you're aligning yourself with the right people and you're, you're moving forward at a constant pace because of the power of mentorship, because of the power of a coach. So how did you get into some of these tactics and, and was it the power of a mentor that kind of led you there? Most of them were through a mentor, but some of them were also from networking with other investors. So anytime I talk to another investor, especially people who aren't in your own market, because sometimes people who are in your own market, maybe they feel like you're their competition. They don't want to share things with you. But especially if you get into some mastermind groups with other investors that are across the country, we're always asking each other, hey, what's working for you? What's not working for you? Oh, you're, you're using Facebook ads? How do you run them? Oh, you do mailers? Well, who do you mail to? What list do you use? What does your mailer look like? What does the envelope look like? So you're always talking and asking. I think the, the thing that I think a lot of newer investors think is, if I just had this one secret, I would be able to become successful. And there's one little thing it's really a game changer, but it's really not. Um, I talk about learning to earning. So you've got to learn to earn in this business. The more that you learn, the more that you will earn. So it's the lifelong thing. So I might, my Facebook strategy works really well today, but that doesn't mean the next person that I run into that's running Facebook ads, I'm not going to ask them a hundred questions and say, oh, what picture do you use? What is the copy that you use and all that good stuff? So you're always learning to make more money. We're getting to present day, Tom, and your businesses have been have been doing well, and you've been able to kind of free up your time from doing, you know, working 100 hour weeks and things like that because of your daughter. And I'm not sure if you have any more kids now at this point, but you've been able to free up your time to hang out with your family. So let's talk about your lifestyle and what you envision as, you know, what, what your ideal lifestyle design is, because that's what the show is about. It's about real estate investing that provides you with the lifestyle that you've always wanted. So what's your lifestyle currently like today and how are you able to allot your, your time to your family and things that you truly love. So it's interesting because when, when I was working in corporate America, I always thought that I want to make money so that I don't have to work that much, right? I want a lot of free time to do whatever I want to do. And then I built a business that allowed me to do that, but I'm still working the same amount of hours I always worked. So what I found is that for most people, they have to go on vacation to get away because they've got to get away from the life that they currently don't like. 
my business I love. There's nothing in my business that I do that's hard. It's always fun. And my best friend actually worked for a big company out of college. He got stock options. He sold out. He got really lucky. He got a ton of money. Right now, he's in Hawaii. And a lot of my friends that I grew up with are very jealous of him, that he got a big payday, and he just travels all over the world. And I don't even have the heart to tell them that if I was in Hawaii right now, I'd be working on a real estate deal because real estate is that fun. So I think that real estate's incredible for two reasons. Number one, you can make a ton of money, which is exciting. But number two, it's really, I think, some, a profession that a lot of people are passionate about. So it's the type of thing, like in my case, where I could work a lot less, but I choose not to because I love what I do. Lifestyle Design Acceleration Hacks. What is your favorite Before the Millions book? Rich Dad, Poor Dad, it's what got me started. It's what really was a mindset. It doesn't teach you how to do one thing, but it gets your mind in the area. And that's the first step is, is understanding the mindset. Love it. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. I'm going to say Facebook. I think it's the most, I hate when people say, I'm quitting Facebook. I'm trying to be on Facebook less. less. Why? It's the most amazing app there is, right? You can talk to anybody in the world. I mean, there are people that I've connected with, successful real estate investors, coaches, mentors, that I found from literally just clicking a couple buttons. I'm a huge proponent of it. I think it's the best app that was ever created. I agree, I agree so much. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? What I enjoy most is the freedom, right? So if I decide tomorrow I wanna get up and I don't wanna work, I don't have to. And when I do decide I'm going to work, the other thing I love is I choose to work on my business, right? So I'm not doing a lot of the day-to-day -day activities, and this is something that people kind of have to work up to, but I'm not doing the day-to-day -day operations in my business. I'm doing all the high-level, kind of creative, pushing the business forward thing. So that's, to me, the freedom to do what I want. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? I think the sacrifices are mainly mental in that you're gonna have failures in the beginning. And I think that you just have to prepare yourself that you know there's this chart that shows what people think success is and it's kind of like a straight line going up, like just, you know, very, you know, you make a little bit of progress every year. And then it shows what true success is as an entrepreneur. And it's a squiggly line going up and down and, and kind of crazy. And that's really like you mentally have to understand that that's what it's going to be like. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how hardworking you are. I promise you in year one, you're going to want to quit. And there's going to be multiple times during that first year that you're going to think, well, maybe this isn't for me or maybe it doesn't make sense. So you've got to, every time that you get knocked down, you have to get back up and you're going to have to do that for a long time. So you just have to get yourself mentally prepared in the beginning in order to do that. Amazing, amazing advice. I love that so much. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? Hmm. Well, I'd have to say the first mentor, but I, I don't necessarily, even though I had one mentor that kind of pushed me over the hump, I don't necessarily think it was one person, right? It was it was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It was the other people that I talked to nationally. It was other books and audio that I read. So I think really, I'm, you know, besides my parents, I'm a product of the information that I have and the information I was able to obtain 
So I don't think that there's necessarily one person outside of, if I had to say my parents, but it's been a lot of, of different, you know, things. And that's why even if you do get a mentor, right, you can't just have one mentor, right? Maybe you can only pay for one mentor, but you have multiple people that you can talk to and multiple sources of information because every person has their strengths and weaknesses. I've, you know, fixed and flipped over 500 houses. I own a bunch of rental property. I've built a big company. In some areas, I'm not a great coach because I'm, that's not my skill set. So you've got to get a lot of different people in your life that can raise you up. And really, you know, you make as much money as the average of the five people you hang around with. You've got to start hanging around with some people, not necessarily that make money, but have the same dreams and goals as you. Last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention on getting to the millions? That first step, that first step is the hardest because it's scary. It really is. And, and you're doing something that, that again, most of the people around you are not doing. So it's, it's like, you've got to be almost a pioneer in a way. I, almost, you know, very few people that are successful like that. A lot of them are the first person in their kind of social group that is. So it's difficult to be the first person, especially when everybody else is saying, you know, anything from don't do it to, I don't know if it makes sense, you know? So I think that's why you've got to get around other people that, that are successful and they're pushing you. Solid, solid, solid stuff. Well, Tom, again, this has been superb, an amazing episode, and I'm so glad you were able to come on and share this with us. I love speaking to individuals like you who are actually in the trenches and also giving back. There are a lot of people who are real estate investors, and they're simply investors. They don't have any type of philanthropic incentive uh, behind what they're doing. They don't coach, they don't mentor, and you're doing it all. I mean, you're, you're working your butt off to provide for yourself and your family and all of the people that work for you, but you're also giving back to, to students and to the community and you're coming on podcasts like this and you're, you have, you have clients that you're teaching how to get into their first investment property. So I think everything that you're doing is amazing. I commend you for that. If people want to learn a little bit more about you, if the listeners want to find out, go to your website or get a hold of you, how can they do all of that? So if you go to www.realestateinvestingiseasy.com, again, that's www.realestateinvestingiseasy.com. Again, on my email list, which I do tons of training. I do multiple training sessions every single week. And you'll also get my email if you want to reach out to me. And even if you just have a quick question, like I said, I love what I do. So, you know, you'll always be able to get in touch with me. I'm never going to give up the ability to, to talk to people because I, I love talking about real estate. If there's one parting word to leave our listeners with, what would it be? My parting word is to not give up. And if this is something that you really do, really want to do, if you don't really want to do it, then cross it off your list and don't move forward. But if it is something that you want to do that you truly love and you know you want to do, you have to get prepared and you have to just push forward no matter what. Love it. Love it. Well, Tom, we will talk to you soon. Anytime. Thank you for having me on. 